Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You know, we don't have Evan for our Cowboys segment. He's going to join us for the Rangers, and then he'll be, uh, and then he'll Does leave he us to? again. And uh, it, through the miracle of, uh, you know, modern technology, we're going to be jumping around here with and without him. And I, and I think we're going to be the most enjoyable parts is when we're jumping over Evan. <laughs> I think. Can we do like, can we have like one of those digitally altered podcasts where we just go through every week and take him out? <laughs> I'm all for that. I'm all for that. That'd be no problem at all. No, it'll, it'll be good. Uh, so anyway, so David, the, uh, the Cowboys, uh, had 10 days off, you know, I was thinking about that, uh, over the weekend, uh, that must be quite a relief, uh, with the Cowboys uh, season so far to have 10 whole days, uh, between games, uh, even though they, they, they did play well in the second half of that game against the Giants. The first half was my gosh, it's just the, back to the same old thing with this team you know you you and, you and essentially you got in one complete game the entire Cowboys experience right you got the the, the first half with them as as Dak talked about he uh they, they couldn't stay off their own feet you know they kept you know stepping on each other's foot uh two interceptions by Dak just inconsistent play overall penalties I think they had seven penalties in the first half alone not a lot of yardage but they were all penalties that put them in bad situations and wiped out good plays uh just everything you could think about that they that they do wrong they did in that first half and then the second half they came out and played like they do when they're uh playing to their capabilities yeah they came on the second half and started with three consecutive uh scoring drives touchdown drives to uh really seize control of the game um, you know, th- this was, you're talking about this 10 day break. Now, the reason it's so welcome is they played three games in 12 days. And, uh, that giants game was the the third in the stretch. And we talked about it where you had, you know, this, this incredibly, uh, frustrating loss they endured against green Bay on the road when they blew a 14 point fourth quarter lead, uh, then you came back into these these soaring heights of as good a game they've played in a long, long time on the road in beating Minnesota the way they did, forty to three. And uh, the the game on Thanksgiving Day was going to be the tiebreaker, right? It was going to be those were the two extremes you saw. And where are the Cowboys on that scale? And like you said, you got a little bit of both. Now, uh, on top of the fact that it was the third game in twelve days, they also uh, the flu bug was going through the defensive line room. So it altered their rotations there. And guys were, uh, I think, low energy in that first half a, a little bit. But uh, d- to me, I thought it was an impressive response when a- at halftime they saw that, hey, you know, we're, we can't let this thing slip away. We're about to get a break. Let's just dig down. Let's go. Let's do this and, and let's perform at a level that, that we have been by and large over the course of the season. And then they went out and responded and did that. So when you put it in the context of three games in 12 days with uh, an illness going through the defensive line and the fatigue that would already be in place because of playing three games in such a concentrated stretch, uh, I I thought it was a very good response by them and and just reinforced that they are among the top teams in in the NFC. And and, and here's the other thing real quick, you know, in, in a span of five days there, uh, in Minnesota and the New York Giants, they beat two of the three teams ahead of them in the conference standings in a span of five days. And what were we saying when Dallas had a comparable record this time last year, but we started to realize that, well, they're beating the bad teams, but they're seeming to lose to the good teams or or the teams that are ahead of them in the standings. Um I thought beating Minnesota and the New York Giants, two teams ahead of them in the conference uh, in, in back-to-back games coming so quickly, really was a statement that that, that the Cowboys are, are at or near the top of the conference with Philadelphia, and it's everyone after that. Well, I think Jimmy Johnson put it perfectly at, uh, uh, I don't remember when that was, before the games last Sunday, I guess, that uh, if the Cowboys play like they played against Minnesota, that they beat anybody. Chiefs, sure. 
Bills, anybody you want. Uh, they can they can put that game together every Sunday. Of course, no team can do that. Play at that level all the time, or very few teams can. Not not in today's NFL. There was a time, perhaps when they when they would, and the Cowboys did in the early nineties. That's the way they did play pretty consistently. But that was before you know uh, salary caps and and other issues and uh, that that made it a little more difficult to put together those kinds of rosters. Um, well, so yeah, David- and people who want to minimize that, though, you know, I've heard people go, well, you know, that, that Minnesota just had an off day or look, we knew Minnesota wasn't that good. Uh, a Minnesota team that's only lost two games all year. Uh, I, I would point out sandwiched around what the Cowboys did to Minnesota. You know, they had that compelling, uh, you know, overtime victory over Buffalo. Uh, just a few days before they played Dallas, at which point everyone said, oh, well, they were emotionally drained. So that's, but, but then they came back and what? They scored 29 points, I think, or, or maybe more against the New England Patriots uh, yeah. and, and Bill Belichick and that defensive scheme. So Minnesota is a very good team that had no shot of winning a game at home against the Cowboys. And, uh, you know, I always get interested when people talk about making a statement. It's it's only a statement if you if you maintain that relative level of performance, right? Uh, you can't just throw out that game and say, "Well, see, that's what we're capable of," and then spend the next five or six weeks not playing up to that level or giving any indication that you can. Um, so this is a you know this is a stretch here. Like we said, Dallas just beat two teams ahead of it in the standings, and now the the teams they face over the next three weeks. Uh, none of them have a winning record. Uh, we're, what we're really talking about is Dallas just taking care of business to setting up that expected showdown with uh, Philadelphia on Christmas Eve and uh, against the Colts, who played last night uh, and didn't look that good, against Houston, which is the worst team in the league, and against Jacksonville. Uh, Dallas will be favored in all those games, should win all of those games, and uh, is looking at carrying and needs to carry a, an 11 and three record into that uh, rematch with the Eagles on Christmas Eve. All right. I want to talk about two things uh, uh, as far as those games. Obviously, we want to talk about the Colts this week. Watch that game last night. Boy, the, the Colts are really struggling, uh, yeah. especially with, with Matt Ryan at quarterback. I have never heard Troy Aikman be so um, I don't think he was trying to pick on Matt Ryan. But boy, he did not have anything good to say about him either. Uh, and and this is a quarterback who got a team to a Super Bowl, uh, who has a pretty good reputation in this league. But man, there were times last night that he looked like he was about forty-seven years old, not thirty-seven yeah. years old. Uh, and so they're really struggling on offense. Uh, they got Jonathan Taylor, and, has, and that's always a, a worry for the Cowboys when you're playing a, a good running game. I don't know why. Uh, that Indianapolis wouldn't ground and pound and or at least try to do that against oh, the sure Cowboys they because they, yeah. they certainly aren't going to beat you uh, with their passing game. Matt Ryan looks so afraid in the pocket now, and I can't imagine what he would think going up against the Cowboys' pass rush. I can't imagine why the Colts would put him in a position against that Cowboys' pass rush. I would think that they would, if they were smart, they come out running and just try to run the entire game. Well, that's that's clearly what they'll try to do. Um, but what if Dallas comes out and, and jumps to a 10-0, 14-0 lead and forces them into some third and longs where they're going to have to pass? Um, you know, Dallas has some saying that too. And Dallas knows if if we can stop Jonathan Taylor in the running game early, uh, we can dispose of this team early. And um, you've seen them do that at times this year. Um Look, Dallas is a, a much better team at this stage of the season and, and a much better coaching staff than uh, than what the Colts have in place, right? Uh, so the, You're not the a fan of Jeff Saturday? Oh, I am a fan of Jeff Saturday, but, I mean, this was an untenable situation he found himself in, right? Uh, yeah. You, you just – you assume a staff, you're going to have to go out. I, I, let's see what he does when he assembles his own staff and actually isn't literally just thrown into a boiling pot of water. You know, let, let's give him a little time and and see how he handles this. I, I, I think he, unconventional the way they went about it, but yeah, I, I think he has the traits. He's certainly a, a leader and knows how to deal with people. And uh, from what I've heard, he's very detail-oriented and structured. So that would help with the scheduling, uh, how you schedule practice and, and, and your emphasis on what you do. But um, 
we're not going to see him at his best this year, right? I wouldn't think. And this team, the, the Colts are hurting. And uh, and like you say, that you know, I've always liked Matt Ryan a lot. I, I thought he was one of the more underrated good quarterbacks in the league consistently for a long time. But you know what we're seeing with him that I thought you would see more with with Tom Brady and what which just another exi- you know example of what sets Tom Brady apart is the older athletes get at the quarterback position usually the more average to bad games they have they're still capable of rising to the occasion but they're more inconsistent they don't have they're not as consistently good as they were um and boy you've really seen that with ryan when he was off like he was in in the game monday night he just looks horrible yeah he's terrible all right so now i want to talk about the second thing here and 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 then we'll talk about some specific things with personnel but uh watching the 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 packers and the eagles play uh the other night um that's a, a, another example of, of what the cowboys let slip away because the eagles ran for like oh i don't know six miles against uh, the, yeah. the Packers defense. And now you go back uh, and you look at the game plan more than anything, right? And you go, why didn't they run more against that Green Bay team, especially on the road with a 14-point lead? Yeah, exactly. That, that's what plays into it. You know, they can point at things and say, well, see, we're still running the ball. This is what the stats say. It's like, yeah, but that's not what the situations say. You know, mm-hmm. in, in the situations you had there with a 14-point lead, that's the time you salt it away. That's the time that you decide – this is what we're going to be. We're going to be a running team. Yep. And I got to tell you, I've just become such a, a, a convert to that this year about running the, the football because I just see it across the league where uh, defenses have, has, have adjusted and really taken away uh, a lot of these passing games. And, and some teams are just insisting on doing it. And even, even when they're able to do it, it's like when you get in a shootout with the Chiefs and you go and you score and, okay, yeah, we, we scored real fast and we left a minute and a half for Patrick Mahomes. And that's yeah. That is like a minute and fifteen seconds too much, you know, for Patrick Mahomes. So, uh, you know, you you cannot get into shootouts. I don't think with a lot of these teams, and I do think that because you're able to run the ball, uh, teams have shown that they can do that this year. That is just the way to go, and especially when you have a team like the Cowboys have demonstrated this year that is so strong with tight ends as well. Uh, and that's a that's another uh, area where I think the it, it plays into the whole concept of the Cowboys with these jumbo packages and playing uh, with uh, two and three tight ends at a time on the field. Uh, this, is, this is really their identity. This is really who they should be. Well, I love the three tight end package. And, and what it does is it minimizes the fact that you don't have an established third receiver which is why we're still talking about Odell Beckham here over the last three weeks, and we'll continue to for another week at least uh, until he visits uh, the Cowboys next Monday. But so you you still have a receiving threat out there. You're just – it's not a wide receiver. It's a a tight end. Um, You create more size. You create more matchup difficulties for teams that are playing nickel and dime packages – um, uh, so, and, and then you also make yourself a better running team. And, and basically every time you go to the line, when you have a three, uh, tied in set, the defense really doesn't know whether you're going to run or pass, <laughs> you know, now you can say, well, we assume it's going to be a run here, but they're, com- but basically their entire package passing package is open to them as well. Uh, the way they're using Peyton Hendershot and Jake Ferguson and Dalton Schultz and, um, I, I thought you've seen other games this year where the elements they bring uh, a, a, as a package have been noticeable, but uh, they, they really served Novus on Thanksgiving Day. I mean, Dalton Schultz, the two touchdown passes. Jake Ferguson, not a touchdown pass, but made some difficult receptions and then hurdles a guy in the open field, which no one was expecting. And he's a powerful guy. He's a guy who takes on tacklers and goes right at them, usually. And then uh, Peyton Hendershot scoring on a, on a reverse, on an, on an end around, a jet sweep. Uh, it, it just it illustrated all of their skill sets and just the creativity it brings to uh, Kellen Moore in the offense. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, you brought up uh, o, uh, Odell Beckham Jr. So let's let's talk about uh, whatever it was that happened on that airplane. Uh, I have no idea. Uh, it's not a good thing when you're evacuating a plane just to get you off of it. 
you know, I, on that, one of that, the busiest travel days of the year. Yeah. Can which, you imagine how what the other other passengers on that plane were thinking? Oh, oh my, my gosh. Not a lot of Cowboys fans on that plane uh, if, if he ends up signing with the Cowboys. So do you think that in any way that will affect the Cowboys decision on on, on signing him? Uh, they have said no. Um, they have come out and made it very clear that that episode really doesn't factor into the pursuit of him, that they have a good read of him, on him, where he is, who he is, how he'll fit into the locker room uh, that goes much beyond that one episode. I don't know how you couldn't at least have some alarms raised on, on, on that episode, especially knowing how much it is worth to him right now, right? To, to I mean, the, the, the fact that you would have this happen – you know, several days ahead of his barnstorming tour where he's visiting the Giants and the and the Bills and the Cowboys is not a good look. But I don't think it really impacts any of the teams because they're looking at a guy who may be more of a luxury than a necessity here, uh, gives them another weapon. Uh, if you don't use him, fine, but there may be games here in the stretch or in the postseason where you need him and he's going to benefit you. Uh, so I, I think a lot of teams, when you look at them in that in that context, will say, well, sure, this is a no-brainer if we can get the money right. Uh, we'll, we'll bring him in here. If he can help us, he will. If not, we'll kind of keep what we have in place, but but we always have him there in reserve if, if we need him and he's back physically. Uh, I, I will say the one thing based on the behavior in the Miami airport is, I, I guess my question would be, if you if you have this strident stance against buckling up on planes, how are we going to get you to road games? <laughs> Maybe they so there's a practical a application to it, right? Is that Madden Cruiser available? <laughs> exactly. I, I guess he'll have to bring a, a bus with him. The, the Madden bus yeah, will have to uh, right. be part yeah, of this the, package. Yeah, the, uh, the Odell Beckham Jr. bus. Well, I, yeah, I, I'll say, you know, barring anything crazy that comes out of all that, I you know, obviously you're checking out the medicals, you're checking out the legal situations and all that, and, and, and if there's anything, any repercussions from any of that. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'm with you on this. I, I If you got the opportunity to sign him, I sign him just because it just gives other uh, def- uh, other teams, other defenses, something else to worry about, right? They're not sure. they're not worried about Noah Brown uh, at, at this point. So uh, if you've and got – And here's the yeah. threat of it. It's not even l- – let's say you, you exactly. use him or, or let's say you find yourself down 14, 17 points in a playoff game. Just the threat of him out there is going to allow you to do some things beyond what – you know, Noah Brown in a, in a three receiver set is going to do. So yeah, no, no um, question about that. So that's, that's why you go ahead and do it. Now, let me ask you this and uh, real quickly, David, what's it going to take to sign him? Yeah. You know, uh, this year is a no brainer. I think it's going to cost him $5 million because of, uh, you know, what you would expect that's for the rest of the season. That's, that's okay. Fine. Uh, but what's it going to take past that? Is he going to want a three year deal? Is he going to want $20 million a year? Do you have any idea what it is he's shopping for? Well, he has indicated he doesn't want to be a hired gun like he was last. You know, he wants to get to a place and then actually be there to start, go through the offseason program and be part of that team next year. That's going to be that's going to be where the, the leverage and the negotiations come in. Uh, is another team willing to give him that second or third year? How much of it are they going to guarantee? How high does it get when you look at where receiver contracts are? Um, you know, Amari Cooper, they traded him for a fifth-round pick because they didn't really want to pay the $20 million. Well, Odell Beckham Jr. is up on that level. Uh, now, again, the club would say, yeah, but you're coming off two major injuries, your age, there's no way you can expect that. Uh, that doesn't mean he doesn't expect that. So we'll right. see. I, I think the negotiations are going. I think he will probably be let, offered less than what he thought he would be for that second season. And then he and his people are going to have a decision to make. Okay, do you just want to come back and show you can do it and then get a fresh start, you know, this offseason free agency? Or do you want to go ahead and tie yourself down here for less money than you wanted? Yeah, I will say, if nothing else, a little incident in the Miami airport didn't enhance his uh, negotiating tactics any yeah so, something you can bring up right you can go well yeah. what about this just where where are you mentally right now yeah. <laughs> exactly uh, i think I, I think that's what i'd say too all right that'll do it for our cowboys segment we'll switch over to the rangers now we've got the winter meetings coming up next week uh evan where are the winter meetings this year 
San Diego, Kevin. They always go someplace nice so that we are tormented by being stuck inside a hallway chasing executives for rumors, and there's nice weather and wonderful things going on all around us. Well, I'm sorry you have to go to San Diego, Evan. It just sounds awful, uh, and uh, we appreciate you uh, laying on that grenade for the rest of us. That's really terrific. I will sacrifice for for this newspaper um, yeah. and this news-gathering organization that, that we are. I put my body first. <laughs> yes, I don't want to. I don't want to ever think of Evan's body first. Okay, let me just say that from the very beginning. All right, uh, let's let's move on then to the uh, the Rangers. So, so Evan, who do we think is you know? Obviously, we we've gone over all these names ad infinitum. You know, uh, Jacob Degrom. Uh, you know, Carlos Rodon. Um, those are the big, the two big names in free agency. Uh, do you think that the Rangers are more likely to add a pitcher of that nature, or are they more likely to trade for somebody, or are they more likely to go middle rung? Well, I I look at it this way, Kevin. I mean, the, the three guys at the top of the market, as you mentioned, let, let's add Justin Verlander to Degrom. Sure, no, absolutely. Let's add him. I, I feel like Verlander is going to go somewhere that is a world champion contender this year. He's either going back to the Astros, going to the Dodgers, or going to the Yankees. I think that's that's pretty much a no-brainer. I think when it's all said and done, DeGrom is going to end up in, in kind of a similar situation. This is a guy who's 35 years old. He's going to end up probably signing a shorter-term deal, maybe three years. Uh, and I think it's going to be with a team that's ready to win a World Series right now. Now, the question then becomes on Radon, uh, who's a little bit younger. He's five years younger than, than, than DeGrom. Um, are you willing to go to six years for a guy like this? And I think importantly, where the Rangers are concerned, are you going to be willing to pay a little bit higher than the rest of the market in order to buy this guy and say, even if we're not ready to win the World Series in 2023, we're going to be better, and we want you here. There's a premium that still has to be paid because the Rangers haven't proven anything to anybody yet. And until they show that they're a winner, they're going to have to pay a little bit higher um, than the rest of the market, I think. So now all of a sudden you're talking about Carlos Rudon, you're talking about six years maybe at $35 million a year. That's another $190, $200 million uh, investment. Is that where you want to be, or do you consider plumbing the middle of the market where this team really has done well in the last four or five years and, and really identified good guys who are probably on the cusp of that top tier of performers um, when they by the time they get here and, and, and pitch? And, and so I feel like more realistically – that's where the Rangers are going to end up. The uh, now, what you said about uh, Rodon, that isn't that a possibility though? With also, I'm just going to go back to the you know the top of the market again, just for a moment. That Degrom yeah. could do the same thing, right? I mean, that what if what if the Rangers were willing to go four or five years uh, with him, and everybody else just wants to do three? Isn't that the way that the Rangers could land him? Sure, but I also again you're you're think you're talking four or five years for a guy there probably at thirty seven, um, so you're talking again again about one hundred and sixty million dollars for a guy who has not pitched a ton of innings the last three years and who is thirty five years old. So, um, and, and I do think Kevin, you know, we we've, we've talked about this too. I'm not looking to save Ray Davis any money. That's not my that's not my my job here. Um, but if you are trying to build a sustainable model for success, do you want to end up with three guys in their, you know, who will be in their mid to late thirties in the next two or three years in Simeon, Seeger, and and Radon, or or I'm sorry, Degrom at thirty plus million dollars a year on on average value? That that that's a that's an awful lot of weight to put on something. Um, financial. 
Yeah, that's the the question for me is I don't really know where Chris Young stands on all this. You know, we don't really have a good grasp of what it is he's wanting to do. He he goes out and hires, you know, the most accomplished manager in Rangers history. Obviously, he had to pay a lot more money for that than he would for uh, for what the Rangers have been paying for managers. Uh, he seems very impatient about all this. We we get an idea that Chris is, was very frustrated with the, the losing for the last couple of years. Um, I just don't know to what extreme Chris is willing to run this, you know, because on one hand you can, I think all the points you make are perfectly valid. And I think probably I lean toward what you're talking about, but also if these guys the middle infield is an older middle infield, don't you want to win now while they're in their prime? Uh, isn't that the whole idea? So uh, and you're running that risk, obviously. You run the risk with any pitcher. Or, you know, they're the worst free agent contracts you can give out are to big, big bucks contracts to pitchers because they, they, they've, they've always shown historically they're the worst values. Uh, we already know that. So you're, you're, you're gambling no matter what, uh, and you're really gambling on DeGrom because of the injury history, but you're also gambling that what if he hits? What if he gives you 170 innings this year and he's as good as he's always been? Then you've got a legitimate ace, and then now you got now you've got a shot this year. And there, uh, and listen, the same thing kind of applies to Radon. He pitched 178 innings, I think, last year, and and it was a it was kind of the outlier for most of his career. But let's let me simplify the question, probably to the point of oversimplifying it. We know Radone and DeGrom are better pitchers than, say, Jamison Tyone and Michael Waka and Nathan Yavali. If those guys are going to cost, if the, one of those, if either of those two guys are going to cost thirty-five million dollars, and Waka or Yavali, uh, or or the guy who I probably lean most towards because of track record in terms of innings and not beating himself, Tyone, if those guys are going to make fifteen to seventeen per year, right? Are DeGrom or Radon $18 million a year better than either of those guys? That's the question I think that the Rangers also have to ask themselves. And you do kind of couch it a little bit by saying, okay, if you do make the playoffs, now your dynamic looks a lot different if you've got a DeGrom, a DeGrom or Radon at the top of the rotation as opposed to, say, a Tyone or, or say, John Gray. But at the end of the day, that's a question. How much better are these guys than the next tier? And is that a is that a responsible financial expenditure, especially when there are other holes to fill, right? There's still an outfield bat that they probably need to add before it's all said and done and could add some reinforcements in the bullpen. Yeah, it's a it's a real conundrum, you know, uh, about what to do. The responsible thing seems to be what you're talking about: go in the middle of the rotation, and then and then and then you're going to be pretty good. But what you look at is what uh, Seattle's trying to do with one of the best and and to strengthen one of the best rotations in the majors. And certainly, if the if the Astros re-sign, uh, you know, Verlander, the the best rotation in baseball. And so in in just their division. They're going to have two clubs with tremendous starting pitching, uh, and so that's that's the issue for me for them. If they if you really want to win, you, may, you know, and you want to win right now, which it seems to be what Chris Young wants to do. I, I'm not saying he's thinking that in 2023 he's going to have a World Series team, but I think he thinks that I want a team that's not just going to make the playoffs, but have have the the, the possibility of going somewhere once it gets into the playoffs. And I, I listen. I, I agree with that. I, I think that that is definitely something that they have to consider. You know, on the other hand, you look at the National League and what came through the National League. The Phillies got to the World Series without a superstar rotation. Now they didn't have to go through the Yankees, Seattle, and Houston to get there. You could say that they had to go through a, a you know a Dodger team and an Atlanta team and a San Diego team that all had very good rotations, but. Uh, what, getting to the tournament, especially now, I think is a different. It's a different ball of wax than it was at one point in time. If you get to the tournament and you you play, you play well, and you've got a good bullpen, and I think a bullpen is more important almost than a starting rotation at that point. Um, 
And look, we know Bruce Bochy is really good at handling bullpens and at handling starting rotations. You get to that point, playoff series are crapshoots at this point in time. So um, these are all things that the Rangers have to consider. And I, I, I think you you look at this and then you throw one wild card in there, right? Throw this wild card in there. What happens if the Rangers were to go out and acquire Pablo Lopez via a trade? Here's a guy who's going to make seven and a half or eight million dollars max in arbitration next year. So now all of a sudden you have saved some more money on your starting rotation. Do you have the ability to push some other chips in and say, okay, now we're going to take a chance and really go big on one of these other guys? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it there's there's certainly a lot to do, and uh, and Chris Young seems to me to be the kind of guy. Uh, that wants to to get them done. I, I I do think that probably he'll do at least a little bit of work here in the winter meetings, don't you? I do. I just think that, listen, since the Rangers have said and, and really have demonstrated that they intend to be active in all levels of the market, I think the pitching market is going to be defined by what starts to happen with Verlander, DeGrom, more DeGrom and Radon. And until those things happen, other dominoes aren't going to fall. So either the Rangers step out and and change the market at the very top, or they're going to have to wait on these on these middle tier guys until Degrom and Rodon do end up signing someone. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. So uh, if if the Rangers uh, sit back and they and they don't make this kind of move, uh, Evan, can we can we reasonably expect? Uh, that uh, there there might be a uh, I don't know a fallback. Let, let's say that if Verlander leaves the Astros, well that that's going to make a big dent in their uh, rotation. Obviously, they're still going to be really good. That uh, they've got a lot of else to, to go on. I have not kept up with what they might be replacing uh, him with if he leaves uh, from their farm system. Uh, they've obviously done a tremendous job. Of, of developing their own pitchers. Um, I believe almost every other guy in the, in the rotation is one of theirs, you know? Uh, so uh, do you have an idea if, uh, if they're, they're ready to, to do that? I, I don't know. I don't know how they would react. Look, all I know is they went out and signed Jose Abreu yesterday and the Mariners have been as active as any team. Uh, in, in, well, I, I'm sorry. The Mariners have, have, have been somewhat active and the angels have been the most active team in baseball. So, the American League West is is making moves and and, and pushing things in, and um, the Rangers. I it, it's gonna it's also a dangerous situation for the Rangers to be in to react right it, to to say okay we're gonna make moves because this team did this or this team did that. The best thing the Rangers can do is know their personnel, know what is 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 the best expenditure of their dollars, and act on it. And I do feel like Chris Young is. Um, what's the right word that I want to I want to use here is definitive or is confident enough in how he makes decisions that he won't be pushed one way or another by other teams' moves. Yeah, I don't think he will either. But it is phenomenal. Um, you know the the moves that uh, you know that Jim Crane has allowed. I, I don't. I, I'm not ever sure how to take him as an owner and in what he's willing to do to to keep the team together, uh, a championship team. You know they. They let Correa go, and then Pena comes in, and he's, you know, he's a World Series MVP in his rookie year. You got it's just unbelievable what they're able to do with with their organization, you know. And that's just another example of a guy, <clears throat> something that the the Rangers haven't been able to do, right? Uh, the, you know, when is you know we we think that Josh Young could potentially be that kind of talent, uh, a guy ready to do that, but when is somebody going to step up and do that? Well, you think Josh Young could potentially be? Let let I mean, let's compare apples to apples. Josh Young could potentially be an Alex Bregman type, right? Um, and you think you've got a better shortstop in a, in the veteran Seager than than the Astros do in the rookie Pena. Whether Pena has a higher upside or not at this point in time, that's besides the point. You think you're kind of on the even keel or on an even level at second base with? Um, Semyon versus Altuve, but you start to get around the outfield. There's nobody. There's nobody remotely close to Kyle Tucker. There's nobody remotely close to Jordan Alvarez. There's nobody in the rotation 
that has gotten to the point that is a, de- a homegrown developed player like Urquidy or Valdez, the Astros have done a remarkable job. People can talk about the cheating scandal and they can talk about Jim Crane being overly involved. But what cannot be overlooked is what a good job the Astros did of player development over the last decade to put themselves in this position. Yeah, they have. And it'll be uh, up to the Rangers here to figure out if they want to try to close that gap uh, sooner than later. Uh, it's going to be really hard uh, at this point, especially when they're gonna, they're replacing these uh, older players with rookies who step right in and play uh, terrific baseball. Um, all right, that's going to do it for our Rangers segment today. Uh, Evan's got to uh, excuse himself and, uh, and go to uh, some uh, real work. So uh, we're going to let Evan do that, and then we'll be uh, back here to talk about the rest of it. I've got to go do some shopping for San Diego. I, I need some resort wear for the uh, – <laughs> No, I'm going to go talk to Mike Maddox. We didn't talk about Mike Maddox coming back, but I'm going to go talk to Mike Maddox this morning um, and uh, get his thoughts on joining the Rangers. I talked to Dayton Moore yesterday, um, wrote a column about that. you know, And I, I think both these hires have shown that experience matters. Um, and, and look, Mike Maddox had a great track record with this club. He's been a very successful pitching coach and bringing him back, I think is, is, is a smart move, but pitching is a lot more than just game planning these days. Hey, Evan, when you talk to Mike Maddox, does he reach over and grab you on the shoulder up there kind of massage the top of your shoulder? Yeah. Nobody's done that to him before. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. All right. Thanks, Evan. Have a good time. Bye-bye. All right, that'll do it for our Rangers segment. Now we're going to move over into a little bit of a, a potpourri. Not a full-fledged potpourri, because we just got two. You love potpourri. I love potpourri, you know. Uh, it's, a, it's a great thing, uh, especially this time of year. You know, you, you, you walk <laughs> so into a room. So appropriate, yes. Oh, yeah, you walk into a room now, and it just smells like Christmas, doesn't it? And that's what this podcast smells like. It smells like Christmas, doesn't it? Doesn't it, doesn't it just reek of Christmas? It, it reeks. Yes. I, I would agree with your, your use of words there. Uh, yeah, there you go. All right. We're going to jam into this segment. We're going to have, a, we're going to talk about the Mavs some, and we're going to talk about uh, colleges because of course we've got the uh, big 12 title game big coming 12, up yeah. Saturday between TCU and Kansas state. Uh, and, uh, and of course what's out there for, for uh, TCU is uh, the college football playoff. It's right there. On the cusp, they are reaching for it. They're, the the committee is handing it to them, unless of course they yank it away, like they did for TCU in 2014. It's happened before. Yeah, it's happened, but they've been in third before. You know, as, as we're taping this, we don't know where they're going to be. I, the AP poll has TCU third. I'm sure they will be uh, in the uh, CFP poll as well. But there are things that could happen. But first of all, before we get to that, I want to talk about the Mavericks. Uh, some big news this week. Uh, uh, the the Faku Compasso era is over. Unbelievable. <laughs> it, it, it came it in red, you know, and, and we didn't even, we hardly even knew him, right? I mean, holy cow. Uh, so anyway, I always have struggled a little bit with, with that first name anyway. Just, it's a little bit aggressive, you know. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I, I'm, uh, I was sorry to see him go. He, I, I thought he had all kinds of potential to be, to really write this shit for the Maverick. So, of course, the word is out and uh, it isn't official yet. Uh, but uh, they're going to, to sign Kimball Walker, uh, who as recently as 2020 was an all-star. I believe that was his fourth all-star appearance in a row. Um, but he's struggled the last couple of years uh, with injuries, ended up with the Knicks, and then the Knicks actually released him so they would have uh, the firepower to sign Jalen Brunson to a max contract. So uh, I guess this was, you know, in the in the ongoing sets of of uh, transactions and dealings and competition with the New York Knicks, who knew that that was going to be yeah. the Mavericks' chief rival in all this? It's just one dealing after another with this this organization. It's just kind of crazy to me. It's like, wouldn't you really want to be you know dealing with the Warriors when you're doing this kind of stuff? <laughs> uh, somebody who was, was a relevant franchise, but any at any rate. Um, I, I got to tell you, I, I don't know what kind of shape Kimball Walker is in. I don't know if he would ever return to the level he was just a couple of years ago when he was an all-star. Uh, maybe he's not capable of that. 
The Mavericks are not asking him to do that, though. Um, I'm assuming they're going to ask him to do basically what he was doing with the Knicks, which is about 25 minutes a game. <clears throat> and um, and if nothing else, it's a little bit like the situation we talked about with the Cowboys and Odell Beckham Jr. is that it's the threat of Kimba Walker, right? It's that <clears throat> we know what kind of player he has been. So far, the threat of Spencer Dinwiddie, the threat of, of Tim Hardaway Jr., the, the threat of Faku Compazzo has been not been enough to keep teams from loading up uh, on Luka Doncic and making life just miserable for him out there. Yeah, I, but I will say I think it goes a little beyond beyond uh, the, the Odell Beckham with, uh, with, um, with him here, with Kimba Walker, because it's, it's not a luxury. They need him to play some quality minutes uh, and, and create off the dribble. And, and it, sounds, it sounds so ridiculous in this day and age to say that the Cowboys don't have, I mean, the, the Mavericks don't have enough players who can dribble the ball, <laughs> or control the ball. But that's really what we're talking about here. They needed another, they needed a ball handler. Uh, you know, in, in this age of catch and shoot, um, those are commodities that you have to have. And and to get the spacing in your offense the way you need it, um, you need, when, when Luca's off the court, uh, when Dinwiddie's out of there, you need a, a third guy to facilitate that and, and kind of spread the court and uh, and give everyone time to get to their spots and then make the right pass uh, and know when to initiate the offense. And, uh, you know, the Mavericks only have two of those players. Now, Kimba Walker gives them a third. Um, but I think he I don't think he's played more than 47 games in either of the last two seasons. Um, no. I think it's unrealistic to expect him to get to the all star level. Uh, which is when uh, the, the Mavericks were in competition with the Boston Celtics to get him to come in. Um, but they desperately need him to be a solid, if not an all-star player, a, a solid player, at least close to what Jalen Brunson was giving them last year. Uh, not to that scoring level, um, but but just as far as being able to facilitate the offense. Because you've seen how bad they look offensively now. Um, and it, what this team is one and seven on the road. Um, it, it, it looks lost offensively when, when Luca's off the floor, uh, you're trying to get him a couple of minutes, spot him a couple of minutes a game where he's a little fresher late in the year. Uh, that's virtually impossible to do now, uh, because of where they are. So they, they need Kimba Walker who to come in here and give them something and, we just don't know yet if physically he'll be able to do it. You know, his understanding of the game, his court awareness, uh, if he if he's fine physically, this is a really good move for them. But, um, you know, could this be a, a, a different version of Porzingis where just where you get going, now you have an injury that keeps him out for eight to ten games and you're back to where you were before? Yeah, that would be my concern, uh, obviously, is, is that, uh, you know, is his health. Uh, look, you know, that was my question and my, my question for Nico Harrison uh, before the season started. You know, last year you went out and made this trade for a third facilitator, uh, which was, you know, to me was not as obvious as, as it is now. And, uh, and it worked famously, right? You know, you bring mm-hmm. in Spencer Dinwiddie and, he, and, yeah. and even uh, Davies Bertans and, the, you know, and uh, in the playoffs, they made all the difference uh, for that team to get to the Western Conference Finals. Uh, and then you go into this season thinking, oh, no, no, we're just going to you know, we're going to give it improve ourselves in the front court. And now every game, what you hear Jason Kidd say is that, hey, man, we got a lot of bigs. So sorry, Christian Wood, if we can't get you in there. Sorry if you're not playing in the fourth quarter. Sorry if you're not starting, you know, but hey, man, we got a lot of bigs. It's like. Well, then why'd you go sign this guy? You know, what was, what was the, you know, or made this trade? You traded a first round pick for this guy. My gosh. So uh, all of this, it just seemed very odd to me. I have not understood, you know, uh, first of all, I, I know they felt like they were not going to be able to, to, to re-sign uh, Jalen Brunson. You know, they should have re-signed him when they had the opportunity and could have got him a lot cheaper two years ago when, when they gave the, 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 the contract of Dorian Finney-Smith instead. They, I know when I talked to Donnie Nelson that summer that that was kind of their thinking was that 
We we got both these guys in the same boat. Takes it first, yeah. yeah, yeah. We'd rather have Dodo than than uh, have Jalen Brunson, and then then uh, then Jalen goes off right uh, mm-hmm. last year, and then in, in the playoffs as well, and he improves his market value tremendously. I got to tell you, uh, as much as we talked about all these other issues with the team, and the fact that that Christian Wood obviously needs to be playing, you know, uh, he is the second best talent on that team, even with the no addition question. of Kendall Walker. No question yeah. about that. I, I can't understand what it is exactly that they're not liking about it, unless it's that, you know, they, Jason keeps saying, well, we're not shooting straight. And they're not. They're not shooting threes like they did last year in the second half of the season and in the playoffs. And that is killing this team because that is still its identity, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That That's basically who they are. And they're, and they're not making those shots now like they did then. So it's making threes and rotating and being there defensively, and Christian Wood is not the best defensive big. Oh, absolutely. That, and that's that's the issue. They, they, he's a little bit better, and he's at least trying to be better defensively, but he's just not. I, you know, but you, you, it feels like there's something else going on here that we don't know, right? We don't get to watch practice. We don't know what's happening in there. Uh, Christian Wood is saying all the right things. He seems like a good guy. You know, uh, but it's it's hard to say exactly what is all happening there. But it is a mess. There's no question about that. Now, there's plenty of time to get this all worked out. Uh, and when you've got Luka Doncic, you know, kind of uh, mitigating all the rest of your problems, that, that certainly makes it a lot better. And that's what, you know, will give any Mavericks fan hope is that they can just get this ancillary stuff figured out that Luka will carry the team like he did last year. Uh, but it is... It is a mess, uh, and I'm, I'm giving them a little bit of, of leash here because of what they did last spring, making the Porzingis trade, bringing in Dinwiddie and Bertans, and that actually working out and working very well. So we'll see where it goes forward. But 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 as you know, that Kemba Walker is going to have to take a pretty big role here. Uh, he's not going to have to be what he was when he was an All Star, but he's going to have to play uh, close to what Jalen Brunson was playing for them last year, I think. I think he's gonna it's gonna be responsible. I I, I think we've we've seen a Denwitty's not that player. He he is who he is. He's he's a nice third point guard, but Kimba Walker has to be the number two. He has to start now, doesn't he? I we'll see how that plays out. I, I still think um um we'll see. We'll see. I mean I can still see him on the second unit in, in Denwitty starting. But you know I will say that uh, this is the problem of elevated expectations, a lot of this. And the the Mavericks went farther than anyone anticipated last year. They were not expected to get to the conference championship, uh, but then they did. And so now they're being viewed from that prism. But what happened? This is a very good young team that lost its second best player. So they're not building on their success of last year. They're now scrambling to try to get back to where they were last year. And that's a much different dynamic than a team that succeeds ahead of time uh, and then builds on that young nucleus because a key guy in the young nucleus is gone. And now you're back to the whole, okay, let's trade out some free agent moves. Let's sign a veteran free agent and hope it hits. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll give them a little bit of time. I'll give them to, well, I don't know, Christmas. And then then we'll jump all over them again. That's the cutoff point. Okay. Exactly. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for the uh, our math segment. Now let's talk about TCU. These little horn frogs have got themselves uh, in a position now. If they can beat Kansas State, which was you know a little problematic for them during the regular season, that was uh, one of their many uh, uh, close wins. Uh, of course, you could say that about almost all of TCU's games until uh, at least their last one, uh, which they they pounded uh, Kansas. What was that? But they got, I think they scored 60 plus points in that game. So uh, they're obviously trying to send a statement to the committee about that. David, I will say this. If they win this game uh, against K-State, I, I see no way that the committee keeps them out of the final four. As a matter of fact, I think they'll be ranked third if they if they beat Kansas State on Saturday. I know Frogs fans will have some PTSD because of what happened in the past, yeah. but I don't. I, I just don't see it this time. If they if they win this game, uh, I think they're they're one of the four teams. I, I think it would be the, the the way that the the gravity with which Ohio State lost, uh, you know, I think helped TCU a lot. Uh, if if that would have been a closer loss, I think they still might have found themselves in the situation they did several years ago, but it wasn't. Uh, Michigan just destroyed them. 
um, and, and coming back that with that happening so late in the process, any scenario for Ohio State to get back in is just not going to happen. So, yeah, I, I think I think they're positioned well. But, boy, this is, you know, teams like TCU, if, you, if you're not the brand name and you haven't been there before, you're just so anxious all the way through, right? Every single game. You just can't afford to stub your toe like an Alabama can or a Georgia or, or some of these other teams and, and, and not have it be overly, overly punitive to you. Um, and, and so they, they have to win this game. I, it can be, it can be a narrow margin of victory, but they have to win this game, a, a loss. Clearly they're out. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's the thing. There won't be anybody else undefeated. Uh, everyone else that will be competing for those last two spots will have at least one win yep. as well. But TCU doesn't have that margin of error. Uh, not, not for, because I, t- I tell you what, uh, I think the committee still likes Ohio state and I, and I, and, and certainly with CJ Stroud as a quarterback, that's the kind of guy, if, if they're the number four seed, if he's playing really well, he's capable of lifting that team to beat anybody, even, even Georgia. So, uh, let, let's talk about these scenarios then for the, for the, uh, uh, for the, for the championship, you know, for the four teams. So if, uh, so if, if TCU loses, I think they're out. Uh, I think at that point, then we're, we're talking about what happens. Let's, let's say LSU were to, to win, uh, and beat Georgia. That's not going to happen. Let's say they were to beat Georgia in the SEC championship game. LSU still doesn't get in, but I still no. think that, that Georgia would. I think, I think even, even with the loss, I think Georgia would make it in there because they're not going to drop from one to to five or six. That's just not yeah. going to happen. Uh, so now, if they got drilled, maybe that you know that'd be a different story. But they're not going to get drilled by LSU. But again, uh, that conference and the number of quality teams has produced through the years during this process. It's they're not they're not going to be penalized to the point where they're not part of this going forward. If they, if they lost that game, even if it's, even if it's a bigger loss than you would expect, like you say, you're just not going to drop from one to five. No. And I, and I think here's what I think is going to be. And and remember, here's the other one, the scenario TCU loses, right. Is what we're talking about. So if TCU lost, they're not going to drop below TCU and TCU would move back. So, you know, I would think so, but I, I will say this, you know, Nick Saban was making his case after that uh, the game against Auburn, the Iron Bowl. Uh, you know, two losses, both by two points. You know, uh, and this is a really good team, uh, and it is a really good team. Uh, I, I think that uh, that Alabama could get back in. I think that because they're not going to have another loss. Uh, that you know they're, they're done, so they're not going to be playing in the SEC title game. So. I think Alabama is still a factor. Of course, USC is a factor as it is now. I would expect that USC will be fourth uh, in this uh, when the rankings come out on Tuesday. So um, there, there's still a lot of things that can happen here. Uh, I think we could still end up with two uh, Big Ten teams in the uh, Final Four. I think we could end up with two SEC teams in the Final Four. But if either USC or, of course, USC would be out because they already have one loss. But they lose uh, two losses with the USC, and they're out completely. There's no chance. I think that TCU would be out as well if they have a, a loss. All right. Well, listen, next week when we come back for our next podcast, we'll be able to talk about uh, how the uh, the Horn Frogs did and the Cowboys did, and maybe if Kimball Walker's playing, what kind of impact he's making on that uh, franchise. We, we certainly hope so anyway. So from everybody in here to everybody out here there, thanks for coming and listening to us, and we'll check you next time. Bye.